Welcome to the Fit for Golf podcast. I am your host, Mike Carroll. The goal of the Fit for Golf podcast is to share insightful and entertaining conversations based around golf, fitness, and health. In today's episode, I am joined by speed expert John Core. John has a master's degree in performance coaching, is a very experienced strength and conditioning coach, and is the Irish national record holder in the 60, 100, and 200 meters over 45 age category. While his background is primarily in sprinting, he has experience in training golfers and athletes from a huge amount of other sports, and the principles we talk about are clearly transferable to golf. We talk about genetics, training as you get older, and some important concepts about training for general health, fitness, and performance that many people are unaware of. John is a true expert in the field of improving sports performance, and I hope you learn from the insights he shares. This podcast is sponsored by the Fit for Golf app, the only golf fitness resource you will ever need. Check it out on www.fitforgolf.blog. It is not available directly from the app store. John Core, thank you very much for joining me. Hi, Mike. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. No, you're you're very welcome. Uh, somebody who I knew I would like to get on uh, since I started doing the podcast, really. So I mentioned it a little bit in the introduction, but John is a longtime friend and mentor of mine. I probably first met him about 15 years ago in Fitnessworks Gym in the Donnybrook Mills in Douglas Cork. I started going there when I was about 14 or 15 and getting interested in training, how it can impact sports, and just as a general interest. John was one of the trainers there and clearly a very good athlete himself. Uh, When you watched him training and coaching people, it was easy to pick up that he knew what he was doing. And to cut a long story short, I got a job in Fitnessworks while I was studying sport and exercise science in UL, worked there for about six years or so before moving to the US. And John was and still is a mentor who I would turn to for guidance a lot. We have had a lot of training discussions over breakfast uh, and and while training. So I'm delighted to get him on. Um, I touched on the intro, John, how your background is in athletics and sprints in particular. Can you give us a very quick uh, background on how you got into sprinting, how you figured out you were fast, and maybe why that appealed to you compared to, to some other sports. Okay. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, well, I, I it was nearly my I became a sprinter um, nearly by accident. I had a friend, uh, we were about 12 or 13, and he'd moved from the UK to Cork in the south of Ireland, where I'm based. And he was involved in athletics and he just invited me along and I, I went along. I had played other team sports, various types of team, team sports. And I, to be honest, I, I, there was no, at that time when I was probably about 13 years of age, there was no inclination then that I had any great amount of speed. But I, I kept going, I kept, you know, turning up for the sessions Um partly because he was going and then another friend of ours was going and it was mostly a, nearly a social thing for me at the beginning. And then maybe about probably, actually when I look back at it, it's interesting to think about why I stayed with it because 
I don't think I was uh, successful in any way until probably year two or three. And so maybe at the age of about 15 or 16. And it seems like at that point, speed really came on. So by I would describe myself as mediocre at, at 13 and 14. But by the time I got to the end of maybe 16, maybe three to four years in, my speed had really come on. And by the time I got to 17, I was, you know, I was running about 21 and a half seconds for 200. And I was down around 10.8 for the 100, which isn't mind-blowingly brilliant. But this was Ireland in the 1980s where coaching was pretty limited. And some of the stuff we were doing when I look back now was probably not appropriate. Um, and then I went from there. I, I, I didn't really stay at it for long term, though, because I, I picked up some hamstring injuries in 1988, which was the year I was turning 18. And then that tended to plague me for the next two years and had real no like no supervision around strength conditioning or what might be causing the problem or what might be causing the problem. And then I just kind of bled away from track and field for the next nearly 15 years before returning as a master's athlete. And um, mostly though, Mike, I went back to master's just to get fit. And one of the coaches there said to me, you still have some speed. I was horrified at the thought of racing, but I decided to line out for an over 35 race. And that was 15 years ago. And I'm still racing master's now. Excellent. Um, the insight you gave us there feeds in well to the first question I have prepared so clearly you've spent a lot of your life researching and trying to develop sprinting speed in yourself and others. Speed is pretty transferable across a lot of codes. If someone is fast at one thing, they tend to have potential for speed and power in other activities. A question I often get asked is how much of it is genetic and can we all make speed gains? Yeah, so, well, we know it's it's pretty well established that genetics plays uh, a role in speed because your genes determine the distribution of your fiber types. So, you you know, you have spectrums of fibers. So you're going to have the slow ones, which are endurance-based, and the fast ones, which are your power and speed-based ones. And your genes do play a role in that because they influence the fiber type makeup of the person. Um, the, the trouble there is that there it, it looks like, certainly from the scientific literature, that there are, you know, hundreds probably of different variations of genes uh, that affect athletic performance. Um, so it seems at present many genes are involved, but and some some playing a greater role than others. Um, so so the gene thing is of significant importance in one way. So for example, if you want to be Olympic champion in the hundred meters and you you're not blessed with an abundance of fast twitch fibers, it's probably not going to happen. However, if you're like most people and your fiber distribution is 50-50, it, it certainly seems like the way you train, the, the way you go about your training can influence how you express your genes. And that's been shown in research. So in other words, if you want to express genes in a way that's fast and powerful, you do activities that are fast and powerful. So that means kind of in, in short, your genes are important, but they're not everything. So most people have an opportunity to gain greater speeds and power. Excellent. In regards to the fiber type um, distribution in people, is it fair to say that most people have a reasonably similar distribution? Yeah. 
there's obviously going to be outliers and we tend to see them see them on TV or, or kind of at the stadium when we go to sporting events. But most people, do they have a reasonably similar distribution and they have the ability to, say, change by, by their training and by the, the decisions they make with their activity? They can either go more towards the, say, endurance spectrum or they can go more towards the speed and power spectrum. Yeah, that's exactly right. Most most people probably have an even distribution of slow endurance type fibers or fast uh, white twitch fibers, which are the speed power ones. So if you found, let's say, in your case, let's say, which is not the case, you were, say, 60% slow twitch, 40% fast twitch, you might find that your body preferred anyway to do things that were more endurance dominant. I think we know that a little bit about you anyway, don't we? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, more. I, know, like, I know you don't like hearing that. In, so, endurance genes and trying to fight them. Yeah, but but you are able to fight them because you've pushed back against them basically with the, the training methods you've followed over the last uh, numbers of years, which have dramatically improved your strength and power. So that's a pretty good example. Now, we don't know your fiber type because we've never had taken a muscle biopsy of you. In fact, like not many muscle biopsy examinations have been done of people I can think of one on an elite athlete, which was the former world record holder, Colin Jackson, who had an incredibly high number of type two, type two X fibers, which are his really suit. He was like 71%, which is an, an enormous percentage fast twitch. So he was always going to be super fast and super powerful. But the other thing to consider with that, Mike, is that you, you know your your genetics. There is a bit more going on there. Like the environment that you're in is is very important. You know, you need like you need to be, you know, like I my friend went to the running track, so I went to the running track. So I started training like a sprinter because I thought that was cool. So that's what I and then so I started pushing my genes in that direction. But there was a track near me. There were coaches near me. My parents were, yeah, go, go running and training. My friends were going. So all of those came together at the right time in the right place. So even even if I'm a 50-50 athlete, I spent developing years pushing myself in the direction of speed. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Really good insights. What you've said there is actually a nice entry into the second the second question in that. You mentioned there that in your developing years, so kind of early teenage years, that you had um, years of speed training, basically, which which influenced how your your say genes were expressed. the uh, The second question after genetics that people say is, "What about age? Is it too late?" So if if a 40, 50, 60 year old golfer comes to you and and tells you that they want to improve their club head speed, they want to get more powerful. And they ask, "Am I am I too old to get faster?" How do you assess that situation? Okay, so I mean, assuming we're dealing now, let's say, with as you said, there a recreational golfer who you know ha- hasn't uh, had any sort of uh, inclusion of resistance type work in his general week, which is most golfers. They're playing golf and they're not doing too much activity outside of that. I think we can reasonably conclude that we can do something there in terms of improving speed. Um, we, because right, what we're talking, like what you have there really is a blank sheet. There are going to be a lot of opportunities there for improving mobility and strength. 
So I think what you do with that person when he comes in is you start by doing a screening of his movement to check, can this guy, can this man or woman get in the positions that I need him to get in to be able to create greater club head speeds? You know, especially now things like his hips, her hips, back, thoracic, shoulders, neck, all those areas are critical because if you can't get in the positions and you add load to a person, you may make those dysfunctions worse. So you need to create clear, good movement patterns. And then even a trickle of strength for that person should help with improvements in speed. So the short answer is, I would say almost in every situation, you're going to have a very good chance of increasing club head speed. Yeah, that's perfect. And that's to any of the people who are listening, a message that I kind of regularly put out online on that. So yes, assessments, very important. But with most average people, we can pretty much assume, unless they have a serious medical and injury background, if you get somebody who is 50 years of age or older, you're going to start them with some mobility work and some strength work and some power work. But it's going to be at a very conservative level, see how they respond to it, and then gradually and incrementally progress over time. Yeah, that's perfect. Actually, I for for my master's, um, my, I did a master's that was two part. It was two years taught and then we had to do a thesis. So I used 50 year old male golfers who were not partaking in any other type of exercise. I, I'll just give you a quick rundown on this now. So I took these men, about 15 or 16 of them. I measured their counter movement jumps and I measured their club head speeds with, with the TrackMan launch monitor. I taught them how to do a kettlebell swing with a 16 kilo kettlebell. And so they had a familiarization day with me, taught them how to do the swing. And I asked them for the next six weeks to swing the kettlebell three times a week for three sets of three to five sets of eight reps three times a week. Then I brought them back and I remeasured club head speeds and counter movement jumps and all had significant improvements from one to 3.6 miles an hour in club head speed from six weeks of swinging a bell in a linear fashion. Simple, like a little bit of pushing with the hips, a little bit of force into the ground, relatively safe. I used a 16 kilo bell because I felt it was pretty light actually for them. And uh, some of the men were so impressed with like one guy whose club head speed went up to by 3.6. He was so impressed, he bought the kettlebell off me there and then. <laughs> yeah, so I actually made a few bob, a few, a few dollars out of it. Very good, yeah. No, that makes sense. Like We know from, from research in golfers that there's a very strong relationship and one of the best predictors um, from, say, physical testing exercises to club head speed is, is jumping type exercises. Essentially, how much force you can put into the ground with your legs and that causes a chain reaction up the next, up the rest of the body. And a kettlebell swing, while not a jump or strictly just a push into the ground, will definitely have a lot of elements of that included. Mm, sure, yeah. Speed is a very interesting physical quality to try and improve. It can be very sensitive. Um, just doing more or working harder, which can work for strength and endurance, often isn't the answer. How do we know if we're working hard enough or doing too much when we're trying to improve speed? Yeah, so but that's a good question. Um, that's uh, I, I, I find this now, this comes up um, 
where I teach, I, I teach speed with Satanta College and that's a Bachelor of Science degree program in Ireland. And the co- that's something the coaches I know struggle to get their heads around. How do I know what's too much and how do I know what's too little? And how do I, how do I put some sort of a measurement around it? I, I think to answer that, you, you have to first, as you said there a little bit, a little bit ago, Mike, you, you must first approach the speed sessions in a fresh state. Okay, so there's no point bringing fatigue uh, into uh, a speed training session um, because there's high neurological, high taxing stress going on for the brain. So you want to be fresh, you want high intensity, and you want plenty of rest, things that are alien out to field sport coaches. Um, Measuring, so for example, with the track and field guys, so the sprinters, it's easy for me because if I give them a very high intensity sprint, a maximum effort sprint, I can time it. So I can see if they do one and I give them adequate, I can see a deterioration in speed and I can call a halt to it. Swinging a golf club is a little bit more tricky because measuring that for a layperson isn't all that convenient unless there's um, an app that I'm not aware of. We that- we can get some, some reasonably priced um say consumer grade launch monitors or radars so they're definitely getting more popular for the lay person to use on the driving range a, lo- a lot of people would would use them they're approximately a hundred to two hundred dollars okay so i think what you're looking for is high high speed high quality efforts with very little fatigue and um, i think the volume is probably better if it's going to be low but there's a little bit of individualism in this and there's also a bit of individualism in how fast you can recover from doing it. And you have to also then factor in what else is going on with the golfer. Is the golfer playing a lot of golf? Uh, is the golfer involved in other activities, whatever, cycling, hill walking? Is he, you know, so you, you have to look at the the, the full pic- picture for the person involved. Um, and I'm reluctant then because of that to put numbers on it, Mike. Yeah. I, I think you'd be, ta- I mean, if I was to guess, I would say not being a golf coach now myself, I, I suppose you're talking about, you know, eight to 10 high quality um, strikes with two minutes break before you repeat the next set and sets like that. But I wouldn't be thinking you'd be doing anything like 100 or anything. I mean, you're probably talking about 30 um, if or thereabouts, you know. As now, if you could measure, like if you did thirty and you had a way of measuring club head speed, and you said, you know what, that's thirty, all averaging or pretty close to my peak, you could add another set. But once you see a deterioration, that's when you draw a line under it and you say, okay, I'm starting to train a different quality now or a different movement pattern. Yeah, really good. So that makes perfect sense. We see that a lot in other sports. There's definitely some coaches because because club at speed and strength and conditioning coaches getting more involved in helping golfers we are seeing this term pop up called velocity drop-offs and that is something that i think golfers could use very simply to assess when they're doing too much in their training sessions and it's what you touched on there so an average club head speed and it works out nicely for numbers sake of a of a relatively good club golfer might be a hundred miles an hour if they are swinging and their speeds are all, say, between 98 and 102 miles an hour with an average of 100, they have about a 2% velocity gap there on either side of their average. 
would you say that if that person was swinging to a level where they could no longer break maybe 96 or 95, that would be a, a sign that they're probably starting to get fatigued and they're not going to be getting any more benefits from the speed training session that day, maybe two to three percent under their their low side of the average. Yeah, I would say that's a good guess. I would say you would want that 95 percent or greater on each each swing. Okay, and for people listening, this is something I also talk about a lot in that there's, and you mentioned high intensity, John. People get confused about what intensity actually means, and they often think that it's how tired they feel or how hard the session is. So some people might consider high intensity. Let's just say they did 30 swings in reasonably quick succession. They feel very tired, and the session feels quite hard. But what you might find there is that once you've done maybe six or seven or 10 swings, your speed is now going down and down. And that's going to actually be a lower intensity compared to your maximum speed, which is what we're really trying to stay close to. So a session with less swings, longer breaks and higher speeds would actually be considered higher intensity speed training than a training session where you're working what feels like harder, you're getting more tired, but the outputs or the speed on your swings is actually lower. Yeah, that's absolutely perfect. Uh, that's 100% what I, I would agree with that. And the same applies to to uh, field sport athletes, Mike, and court sport athletes who rarely ever develop speed on a like purely like that with pure acceleration and a lot of rest and more pure acceleration so they're they're more used to what you described as the out and back sprint repeatability type efforts so the principles are the same high intensity plenty of rest for the golfer it's a little easier because you know he's he's standing on the one spot and he's not having to move his body weight around the place but the, the you know the underlying principle is the same yeah no very good and just Really important for people to think of intensity is not one thing. If we're training speed, you have to use the percentage of your maximum speed as the intensity. If you were training endurance, say, for example, trying to improve a 10K run, you'd be using your average running speed for that 10K as your level of intensity. So intensity has way more meanings than just one. If we're training speed, use your average or maximum clubhead speed as your intensity. If that speed starts to drop off, regardless of how hard you feel like you're working, that is not a high intensity speed session, although it may be turning into a relatively high intensity endurance or, or repeat speed session. And that's something that I think people kind of get confused with a little bit. Yeah. Um, you brought something up, John, that I didn't send you in your questions, but knowing you, you will have no problem on the spot coming up with something. Yeah. You touched on, consider, and this is something that I talk about a lot and get a little bit probably of stick for online, but it's it's all uh, in the in the realm of trying to educate. You mentioned about people, you need to consider what else is going on in their activity. Talk to us a little bit about how trying to train for speed and how trying to train for endurance interact with each other and maybe where the trade-offs come and how it may be important for people who are trying to maximize their speed in a certain activity. And they're also training endurance in their, in their training program. 
Okay, well, right. So, I mean, a purist would say, let's say I'm a, a sprint coach and I'm training 12 and 13 and 14 and 16 year old kids. My my purest speedhead would say on that, really all I want them to do is continually get faster and faster with no element of endurance involved at all. In fact, that would really be my philosophy until they got to about 16. I would want them to keep improving acceleration and top end running speed in the absence of fatigue all the time. In other words, like, like we spoke about at the beginning, push them gen- as far as I can genetically towards their top end speed and do it early, start it early. So I get as much out, out of their plastic systems as I can. But that's, you know, you're going to have kids then who are involved in other sports that require them to, you know, soccer, hockey, court sports, basketball, um, American football. So there is a need in those circumstances for sprint repeatability, which is endurance work. There probably is no need, however, though, for any of those to do anything like go for a mountain run or a long road run if ultimately speed is what they're going to be looking for because remember what we've been saying we've been saying you you push yourself genetically in one direction or you push yourself genetically in in a different direction you can have a mixture if you don't want to be an expert in one thing but if you want to master one thing you you have to draw a line at some stage usually i think probably at the age of about 16 you've got to put your you've got to draw a line and say right this is where i'm going I mean, you don't want to be taking fun away, but, you know, you you can't be an expert at four or five things that doesn't work out, especially with speed. Yeah. And we know that for golfers, I just put a blog on my website recently that it is really a very low intensity cardiovascular sport in that you're walking slowly with lots of breaks. Some people even ride carts, which makes it lower intensity again. But we're trying to have high intensity power and speed and the potential contribution that can have to your scoring potential is far greater than a very high level of cardiovascular health or or fitness as opposed to health. Health's not the the right term for that. So while you're talking about sprinters with acceleration and top end speed, if we consider golfers, whether juniors who are looking at college or professional ranks, or even just someone who's decided in their in their adult life that they want to really try and maximize their golf potential, they're not going to be able to maximize their club head speed while also trying to maximize how well they are endurance wise. No, so they don't want to become they don't need to become endurance athletes. Obviously, they need for general health some level of cardiovascular fitness but they, they have no need to be really pushing it on. Yeah, and just a further point on that, something that I think people forget about a lot is when you're training for speed and power, while the while the goal of the training session isn't to improve your cardiovascular fitness, there is an element of cardiovascular fitness improvement because the heart and lungs and the energy systems are still put under quite a lot of stress when you're performing your max intensity outputs, whether you're jumping or throwing or lifting or swinging, and then trying to recover from them. So even though you're not concentrating on cardiovascular fitness, you will still be getting cardiovascular improvement to some degree. Yeah. 
I mean, if you're a player who finds that he's, you know, barely making it to the 18th because his cardiovascular fitness is so low, okay, there might be some, like, argument there that that person needed to do a little bit to bring his general fitness up. But that wouldn't become the priority for training. Yeah, more of more of a health issue than a fitness yeah. issue at that stage, probably. Yeah. And the thing that I always see with people who are who are in that category, it's it's nearly always due to a high level of body fat. It's not so much a fitness thing. It's more there's probably twenty to forty pounds of excess body fat that that needs to be shifted, and then all of a sudden the cardiovascular issues completely evaporate. Yeah. Um, really good info on training for speed, genetics, how that, how genetics interact with our training to, to lead to us being pushed in the direction of endurance or speed. We're going to move on a little bit to slightly more general, say, health, fitness, and themes that you've seen from your experience as a trainer. Maybe some slightly more practical info for people as opposed to just um, theoretical Mm-hmm. you're nearly 50 i've known you since you were about 35 and it genuinely looks like that you haven't aged i've probably ne- never met someone who people are more frequently shocked when they hear what age you are why what why have you not aged yeah um okay so i definitely well, obviously you have aged so what what i mean is I definitely i definitely able to say good physical condition yeah. from age okay. 35 to 50 with almost zero negative effects of aging in terms of your function your performance your health your body composition yeah it's interesting yeah I, like i i'm probably an interesting case study in that regard i i mean i, I as we were as i was saying earlier like I'm, I'm involved in masters athletics and um like i i compete in the 100 and the 200 meters so from 30, I'm 50 in two weeks' time. So I just recently, because of COVID, I, I ran a, a sort of a in-house race there recently. And I I'm basically ran almost within one-tenth of a second the same time that I ran for 200 at 35. So at 35, 40, 45, and now 50, I don't seem to have slowed down at all over 200 meters. So that, that raises an interesting question, but... More recently in this scientific literature, Mike, like traditionally there was a view that strength deteriorated or power, let's say, like force, fast force, deteriorated more rapidly than endurance. But the most recent de- research is showing that whilst they both decline, whilst insurance de- or endurance declines and strength or speed declines, um, speed declines at a less significant rate, not a greater rate. But the prior, so not, they're taking that now from looking at master that athletes in swimming, cycling, and track and field. Okay, I, I am. One thing, of course, is that is from thirty-five to fifty. I've continuously used my fast twitch fibers for those fifteen years. So, if you compared me to a sedentary person, he will have used no fast twitch fibers because he's walking around on his endurances, slow twitch fibers, and he's going to work on those and getting up and down out of the chair out of those. So the traditional view was that the force fibers, they were preferentially lost, but that seems not to be the case as long as you use them. So we're back to the old adage of use it or lose it. So I've been using it 
all the time, week in, week out, as best I can for the last 15 years. Now, I'm also, Mike, in the lucky position that, you know, I teach speed development. I have a master's in sports science. I'm my whole life with my nose stuck inside in books about speed, about muscle tissue, about muscle tissue loss. I've probably forgotten more stuff than I've actually than I can actually have in my head right now. So I'm I'm very well positioned to look after myself, and then obviously I'm trying to give that knowledge now to like the the younger athletes that I'm I'm coaching. So to answer your question, you know I I look after my sleep, I eat very well, I get massaged, I stay strong, I lift weights, I stay strong. Since I turned forty, I I try and do some muscle building phase every year i sprint a lot i've gotten more cautious i take a little bit more rest than i used to um i must be a pain to live with because my wife it has to make me you know salmon and vegetables and salad and, I, and i'm lucky when i come home it's here for me so that's a real plus um and, you know, there's that selfish aspect then of, you know, like prioritizing. Then I suppose one of the big thing, Mike, is I, I like to train and I love to compete. And that that's a big thing. You know, that's a big. If I were not competing, I don't think I'd be in the same physical condition that I'm in now. Yeah, no. It's a bit of, a, bit of a, long, a bit of a long answer there. No, really good point. I think, I think the way that I try and distill that to people listening is that, not everybody listening wants to be a national record holder or yeah. wants to be considered an elite athlete. But if anyone is listening to my podcast or follows any of my stuff, they generally do want to improve their physical condition, both for their sport and for everyday life. So what I would be kind of looking at is they can use the same principles and ideas that you're using to compete at an elite level. And they can apply them to how much time and effort they want to give it themselves. It yeah, doesn't mean yeah. that they can yeah. try and, you know, absolutely maximize everything. But if they have limited training time, they still want to follow the same ideas so that they can use that time as well as possible. Yeah. I mean, I say I say I, I would have no expectation that 95% of the population would like live the same way I do, but I would still say to my, you know, middle-aged clients, you know, I want you to think about your body like you are an athlete. You know, think a little bit more cautiously about what you're about to eat and about the way you sleep and, you know, about your hydration and the small things that can make a difference to quality of life as well as sports participation. You talked about how from age 35 to 50, you have been using your fast twitch fibers on a regular basis, like multiple training sessions per week. When we look at general population people, even ones who do exercise and they stay fit and healthy, obviously fit is a broad term that has needs to be put into context. Why do so many people who stay fit and do exercise, they're interested in health and training, why do so many of them neglect training speed and power and looking after their fast twitch fibers? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Uh, I think maybe it's maybe it's historical. Maybe it's to do with the fact that people were, were taught at one time that having cardiovascular fitness was the priority. So they needed to go jogging or walking, which are great things for you. But 
little then attention paid to age-related loss of muscle tissue and deterioration in bone mineral density and things that are related to which uh, loss of tissue, muscle tissue. Uh, I, I think it's it's probably been, um, and my experience as well with the medical people is that it's never discussed. You know, they're I, they're happy enough if you know a person you know goes for a walk two or three times a week, but like we we know it's very clear like that as you age. I mean, probably after the age of thirty, you're probably you'll be shocked to hear this, Mike. Probably going to have some loss of muscle tissue unless you do something about it now. People who jog and, you know, who cycle and, you know, go hill climbing and things, they would be better overall than people who do nothing. But people who look after muscle tissue strength or muscle tissue gain, they're probably in the best uh, place of all. And that needs to be done with some form of resistance training. Exercises that stresses the muscular system. Um as opposed to the cardiovascular system as the as the primary training effect. Yeah, correct. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, I was just going to add there, like, yeah. I mean, I mean, it, I, I have no zero problem with endurance athletes, obviously, you know, but like one of the things that they, they tend to lose a little bit at, and is probably related to the decline in performance is even endurance athletes can benefit from speed training because the, 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 the higher you can keep your maximum speed, the, the less metabolic cost to you when you're running or cycling or swimming at sub-maximum. And, uh, you know, even now, like with that information around for 70 or 80 years, that's, that still doesn't transfer across. And a lot of that is because the coaches are volunteers and they don't know. They don't, they don't know that the athletes can benefit from a little bit of top-end speed work. Yeah, and now what, what that reminds me of in the training of golfers whose kind of speed metric is clubhead speed is that we often hear golfers saying that, so golf obviously has a lot of elements go into scoring. There's way more to it than speed, but speed is a really big one. And what we know for certain is that as players uh, playing standard tends to decline with age, it's their physical capacities and their and their speed in particular declines much faster than their skill levels. Mm. And what I'm always trying to say to people is that even if you feel that your speed is at a level now where you're happy with it and you can compete at the level you want, if you're not actively trying to increase it now it's definitely not going to even maintain as you get a little bit older so if you're not actively looking at doing some sort of work for your speed it's going to decline from 30 to 40 it's going to decline from 40 to 50 from 50 to 60 and all of a sudden that makes the game of golf much tougher but if you even do a little bit to stay on top of it and try and gain but what that's going to almost guarantee is that you can maintain Sure, And yeah. probably the best example we have of that at the moment, everybody talks about Bryson DeChambeau. You, you may or may not be familiar with him. He put on a lot of, lot of weight, a lot of strength, and gained somewhere in the region of about 10 to 12 miles per hour in clubhead speed, which he's actually been able to use on the course. Bryson is, is in his mid-20s. But a really good example of that is Phil Mickelson, who is now 50 or 51 and last season on the PGA Tour, he had an average clubhead speed 
of 120 miles per hour, which was in the top 20 in speed on the PGA Tour. And he gained about five miles per hour of speed from the season previously at 49 years of age. Wow. And do we know what, what strategy he adopted for that, Mike? So what's interesting is that because the golf swing has a lot of things going into it, it's not just power or speed. A lot of it is often technique related and a lot of it is intent related. One of the big things that Phil did, it sounds too simple, he honestly concentrated on trying to hit it harder is one of the things that he talked about, just just (laughs) unleashing more of what he had. But he also visited TPI, who he's been affiliated with for a long time, Dave Phillips and Greg Rose. And they looked into some of the technique things that he was doing and that he could try and create more speed. So he looked at a slightly longer backswing, raising his lead heel in the backswing, which allowed him get his hands to go through a bigger arc in the backswing. And the bigger arc you have in the backswing, the more momentum and the more time you have to produce force in the downswing. And he also talked about pushing off his lead foot as hard as he could in the downswing, coming near to impact, which spikes or increases the ground reaction force and leads to a late, almost flash of speed. These are mm. kind of things that Phil was doing anyway. If you look at his swing, he'd have more of an older classical style. But what I always bring it back to, people look at the technique changes he made and the intent changes he made, which are 100% valid and made a difference. There are very, very few 50-year-olds in the world who can do those changes and hit 120 miles per hour on average during PGA Tour events. They might make those changes and get to 105 or 110. So Phil clearly has power and strength to burn, which he has worked on hard over the years. You can't, you nobody at age 50 can technique their way to 120 miles per hour of club head speed. No, no way. Yeah. Um, and the advantage was shown last week. He played his first uh, seniors tour event for over 50s last week, and they play on shorter golf courses compared to the PGA Tour, which Phil is still very competitive on. And he walked away with the tournament. He he won easily. His his oh, distance God. was just was just far far too big an advantage, basically, and it made it made the game much easier for him. Um, we're gonna we're gonna sidetrack a little bit, John, to a couple of things I know you're very interested in, and I think you have really good information about um, nutrition. So you do lots of work with high level athletes, which has been kind of talked about a lot during during this last uh, forty minutes. But you also spend a huge amount of time and have done over the years helping people who are more similar to those listening to this podcast. Average people, and I mean that in the nicest possible way, who are busy with jobs, kids, they don't have a huge amount of time for exercise, fitness. They're a little bit heavier than they'd like to be carrying some fat. They want simple, practical information they can use to put into their routines that help them improve. Oh. What? So no pressure. Yeah. What, are, what are the most common nutrition issues you observe in the general population when they're trying to lose some fat and get in better shape okay um okay uh that's yeah so you want me to solve that in about just give you solve it there in about 60 seconds okay um okay i think just just paint a little bit of a picture about what's happening when you get older you see this this doesn't factor at all in the on the radar in your 20s or in your teens but 
your metabolism is slowing, right? So that's an age-related issue. If you lose muscle tissue, it can, it slows or you're losing it rapidly, your metabolism slows at an even greater rate. That means your requirement for eating drops because if you have a lower metabolic rate and your, your energy requirements go down, you should be eating less. So you can counteract that by moving more. In other words, if you can up your level of general activity, even if it's low level activity, Mike, and you can switch on your system and move a little bit, um, it allows you a little bit of scope to eat a little bit of more, a little bit more. So, I mean, I suppose I should just knock on the head like uh, this, the idea of dieting. I mean, that's that's really what we're talking to people. Like, I never really use that word with people. I, 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 re I really just speak to them about their nutritional plan, you know, their, their nutrient requirements. And I think as you get older, you must accept that you must plan better. You want, you need to, as much as you can, eliminate processed foods and sugar. And you need to think about nutrient-dense foods. Um, if, like if you're talking about much older people, like there are, like this is a big area of medicine, but, you know, as you get into your 60s and 70s, things really do change. You know, you, you, you tend to notice with those people, they tell you that they have less appetite. They have, you know, they, they don't even enjoy food as much, less you know, I don't smell it or taste it as well. So you and and then you know, as people get a little bit older, you know, they're on they're on medications for their heart, for their blood pressure, and then you have issues with interaction with foods. So all of this picture needs to be taken into account when you're when someone says to you, John, you know, I'm sixty, I really could lose deal lose ten pounds. You've got to like you've got to take you've got to sit down with that person and take the lifestyle factors into account, and then try and make a plan from there. No, I'm not a nutritionist, as you know, Mike. But I mean, I do deal with that a lot. So I, I mean, I think the protein requirements for elderly people are too low. I, I think they're too low probably for the whole general population. I say that now, not as a qualified nutritionist. So Just, I would be. You, you think the, the recommended guidelines uh, recommended for protein are too low as a whole? I think, they're, I, think, I think they're too low for everybody. I think they're too low for athletes as well. I think they're too low for athletes. I think they're too low for the general population. Tell us, um, tell us why, just real quickly, why, why, why was protein important for people who are trying to lose fat? Like we always hear protein, trying to build muscle, bulk up, get stronger. We need more protein. Why is it important when we're trying to do the opposite and, and lose some fat and just get healthier? Okay. When most people who try and lose some body fat, they decide that they need to stop eating certain things. So I, I, I try not to have that happen. I, I really just try and reorganize the eating in a better way. I might uplift the protein intake and reduce a little bit the carbohydrate intake because most people consume too many carbohydrates, breads and pastas and things that are easy to eat in abundance. I mean, you can eat, you can sit down and enjoy a massive bowl of pasta, but you won't sit down and enjoy a massive bowl of chicken breasts, you know, because you won't work your way through that. And you, if if you put yourself in a restricted calorie situation, you must increase your protein intake. Now, I'm not recommending it anyway. I'm just saying, you know, a little bit more protein, a little bit more vegetables, maybe a little bit less on the carbohydrate side of things. And just to clarify for people listening, I know that you understand this. The reason or the, the issue with the excess carbohydrates is not so much that it's carbohydrate. It's that 
it's easy to consume too many calories if you eat high carbohydrate foods because they're quite easy to eat in high in high portion sizes which leads to excess calories it's not so much that they're carbohydrates is that carbohydrates make it easy to consume a lot of calories is the real is the real point that is the point yeah and i think i mean i think the one of the things with the aging and the loss of muscle tissue is um the protein might help buffer that it would certainly help buffer it if it was combined with some form of resistance training in fact we know in studies in elderly populations people over 70 not only will it help reverse it it will help you can gain muscle tissue in your 70s like it, over quite a short period of time, much shorter than was or used to be thought, you know, maybe 25 or 30 years ago. The other thing, Mike, is that as you age, especially past 50, your gut, your digestive system is simply not as efficient at extracting the nutrients you need. So, you know, I mean, it's not all really great, is it? When you think about the old age. No, I'm in this boat. Like, I mean, uh, these are things I have to consider about myself. I'm not going to withdraw the amount of nutrients like I would when I was 25. So all the more reason for me to be very particular about what I take in. Um, and then I would consider, I think, uh, the Western diet is lacking in omega-3, unless you're a very good oily fish eater. And in my part of the world where we don't see the sun, vitamin D is a problem. So in terms of supplementation, I think omega-3 um, and a vitamin D, you know, certainly here where we are with no sunlight, that's a probably a good idea. A little bit of fiber in the diet wouldn't do any harm. If you're talking about much older people, 65 upwards, no, not, that's not very old, like, but probably have a look at B vitamins you know, maybe ask your GP every six or eight months to do a quick blood test on you just to see that, you know, the whole system is ticking along pretty well. I mean, you could supplement yourself to bits, but, you know, a blood test should tell you pretty quickly what you may or may not need as a top up. Yeah, um, no, definitely some room for supplements to be important. Um, not that you haven't covered this, but I think where people sort of lose the the clear picture of of what actually is most important with say any type of nutrition and exercise intervention is that the vast majority of the health benefits from nutrition and exercise are really anything that allows you stay at a reasonable weight and body fat range. That's where the real massive improvements in health markers come from is losing excess body fat, having enough muscle tissue and being at approximately the right the right weight, which will happen with those things. And then supplements are almost the the icing on the cake or filling in the yeah. blanks, really. Yeah, I mean, they're, 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 as they say, they're to supplement if you require it. Uh, the other big thing to stress, Mike, is water is very important. Like, it's very important to stay hydrated. And as people age, they tend to drink less water, would you believe? They, they, uh, you know, water is a conductor of things. And, you know, when you have little ailments in your system – if you're well hydrated, you you might be a little more tuned into your little your aches and pains, but you should probably see that as a good thing, as in being hydrated and being quite in tune with your system. Okay, perfect, John. We have covered a lot, and I am anxious to to not dive into too much and have the podcast for multiple hours. The last thing that I would like you to leave us with is. Tell us a little bit about Fitnessworks Gym for people who are in Cork and 
for those who are not in Cork, do you have any online services or resources that they can they can look up? Okay, um, yeah. So FitnessWorks is in Cork, in the south of Ireland, um, the real capital of Ireland. Um, we're uh, primarily a strength and conditioning gym, um, as opposed to a leisure center. Um, you know, we have we operate a general membership, but we also have. Uh, one of our guys is uh, Robbie is he's full time uh, medical rehabilitation person. So he deals with all types of, you know, backs and hips. And we have um, there's a chartered physio there. There's a physical therapist there. And um, uh, we I, I deal a lot with um, some general population and a lot. I have a lot of de- kind of young developing athletes across a, a, a wide spectrum of sports. Um, I have six staff working there, um, so we're 15 years on the go now. This is the second location we've been in, so and thankfully we're surviving the pandemic uh, that's happening at the moment. Mike, we don't have any. We can't we, like we we don't offer any online coaching or anything, but that's something I looked at this year because of the circumstances we found ourselves in. And um, it's something I'm looking at now because the state ha- is willing to help us here to, you know, invest some money in that. And so that's something we're looking at now at the moment. But I think that's a little bit of a project to get the right thing up and running. And we're open seven days a week, 6 a.m. You can drop in any time if you want. I'll, if you say you heard me on the podcast, I'll even give you a free session. <laughs> and then last, lastly, John, when will your first book be released? <laughs> you didn't read my first book <laughs> <laughs> mike i'm only disappointed that we're i thought we were about halfway no we'll you see we'll we'll have people eager now for you to come back for an episode two john what i'm what i'm hoping will happen is there'll be lots of questions come in after this is released and maybe in a, a couple of months we can bring you on for a part two and target some of those as opposed to just uh, going on with our own stuff. We, we learn more from the listeners than we will from, from the stuff we'll be discussing. That's fab. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks a lot, John. Yeah, just... yeah really enjoyable, Mike. Thanks very no. much for having me on. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed this episode with speed expert John Core. I think he covered a lot of very useful info for golfers and people in general. If you have any questions or feedback, please send them in. You can get me at at fit underscore four underscore golf on social media, or you can email me directly at fitforgolf, the digits one eight at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review and don't be afraid to share with some friends. I will speak to you at the next episode.